This is The Jewish Executive Project, a podcast that interviews inspiring and accomplished leaders in the world of business and entrepreneurship. Join veteran international businessman Mike Aaron and performance and leadership coach Rabbi Jacob Rupp, the executive director of H Minnesota, as they discuss what it means to lead through the lens of Jewish values. I'm thrilled to have on today a good friend of mine, John Gumazian, who is the CEO of the Mall of America, uh, and also just an all-around wonderful rock star uh, of the Minnesota Minneapolis Jewish community. So uh, we have quite a few very, very um, deep and profound ideas that come out from John's life, his teachings, the mentors that he's had in his life, his family, and uh, I encourage you to listen with bated breath, as this is great. Thank you so much. John Gramazian, dear friend and uh, fellow Minnesotan, uh, it's a pleasure to have you aboard uh, here today. It's very funny because when people think, you know, the staple of Minneapolis is the Mall of America. And when they think about this massive mall with all of the retail that, that, that there is, and it's like cutting edge and it's like it just crazy stuff, Mike. I don't know, there's, there's a, you know, you, you have an amusement park in the middle of the mall, every single trendy store, and then the guy that's running it is a someone that looks like you'd see him in, in, in Borough Park or in a yeshiva, you know, with the white shirt and the kippah. So like, what's that experience been like for you? You grew up in the yeshiva system. Tell me the transition and how being a, a teacher of Torah and, an, and, a, and a from Jew has sort of played a role into your, your, your position running the Mall of America. I think he's saying, talk about your dual personality. Yes. Dual. <laughs> dual. <laughs> I guess it, it is a dual personality. Um, oh, gee, uh, loaded question. Um, for for me, I guess I spent um, I spent twelve years learning full time, and I had I am really blessed. I was in Near Israel in Baltimore for about ten years of that, and I was very blessed in having guidance. From people that I'm still in touch with today, my 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 teachers and my rap my 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 rabbanim, and so for me, I never saw the my evolution as a person as a con as a contradiction to what I was going to eventually do in the future, and so being uh, in the family that I'm uh, that I'm in, thankfully, uh, and the opportunities on the business side, I always felt that. Um, if I can grow in my Judaism in a way that naturally transitions into that role, then I'll be more prepared to do that. So, um, so for me, it wasn't, it wasn't like, okay, I'm done this. Now I do this. I still consider myself a yeshiva guy or like, uh, you know, like a, I would say like a Torah scholar, but I happen to be, you know, going into the office. So I, I guess I never had that mental shift that happened. It was a very gradual process and it was deliberate. Like I, I, I almost knew two years in advance before I left the study, um, I actually started studying on my own um, because, you know, there's this, co this interdependency on studying with a, a chavrusa, a study partner. And I knew that I'm not going to always have that luxury. So I actually took about two years of training myself to be able to study on my own because I knew that that was going to be a big part of it. I mean, <laughs> my office bag, my kids still call it my Beit Midrash bag, which is my study hall bag, which is, I, it's, it's ironic, but I love that that's what they call it. I mean, it doesn't have any books in there anymore, but 
Um, so it's really, it's, it's just trying to maintain that same mindset and knowing that, um, that I do look different. Like I show up with, you know, I, you know, this might be a little bit more conservative than normal. I mean, you could wear a blue shirt or striped shirt, whatever you like. Um, people ask me all the time, like I pretty much wear the same thing every day. And, and I just tell people that I, that I became a member of a group of, of, of people with an ideology that I felt was important for me to bring to the rest of my life. And so I try to show up in the same way. Um, you know, I, I once in, I, when I worked in an oil company before I went to the, uh, to the, uh, the mall business. Um, so in Texas, I remember once one of the lawyers once asked me just very respectfully, he's like, like, why, why do you dress like a penguin every day? You know, like it was, uh, it was an interesting question, but, so what was there was there more to that question? Well, I, I, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Rabbi Rapp, I'm interested in your question because one of the things that, that we proud as Jews, especially as observant Jews, is we see Judaism as a way of life. And we see every intention Uh-oh. This is going great. So I think I, did I freeze for a second? Yes. Oh, wow. No, no. So I, I think we see every aspect of our lives being intertwined and interlinked. And I sort of almost jokingly spoke about the two personalities, but the greatness of our religion and our traditions and our culture is that everything's entirely intertwined. So nothing that you said actually surprised me when you spoke about the intentionality on the continuation of that journey. And that's the greatness of our religion. Unlike some other religions where you either in that block or you're in that block or you're in that part, we, we, everything's interlinked, whether it's our business, our family, our community, our leadership, right? It, it just seems like it's natural for it to be interlinked. Did you find as you were making that transition into the working world, I guess was your, fir your first job out of, out of full-time learning was in the, in the oil company. Did you find that to be an intimidating switch or was that something that just growing up in your family, you always saw people working and it was, because I think to a certain extent, there, there is a perceived differential when it comes to the different paths of someone that's gonna spend 12 years studying you know, learning at, at, the, at the deepest levels, you go out and teach, be a rabbi somewhere. And for you, it was, it was not that direction. So did you find a certain level of, I guess, d difficulty making that transition? No, it's a good, it's a good point you bring up. I, I, I tell you, I am as passionate as I am now as I was when I was studying full time and educating. I love teaching and I love inspiring and I love growing as a person myself. I, my choice and direction in life, I felt that because of the opportunity that I have to enter into what we would consider like mega business, I felt that whatever I could bring to the table is exponentially more impactful because I could be in that role. And so, although I haven't changed as a person, I'm still the same groggy person and I wake up and I have, you know, maybe not the best bedside manners when I'm tired, but, um, you know, when, when you're involved in something that is perceived as very important, then the message that you carry all of a sudden takes the same, uh, it takes a, I, I once, I once, I was once invited to speak um, at an event in Los Angeles. It was a big, large shul called Netzach. And I gave, yeah. a, uh, it's a Persian community because I'm Persian. Um, yeah. 
I know. It. Yeah. I remember I gave this, I gave this talk. It was really impassioned. I was, it was, I don't know. It was very intellectual. I don't know what it, what it was. And so this lady walked over to me afterwards and she's like, um, are, are you a rabbi? So I said, uh, no, I'm a, I'm a businessman. And then only after I said that, she's like, wow, that was a great speech. That's you know, so <laughs> funny. <laughs> you know, like, it, it, it was funny. I, and I hate to say that because, you know, it's, it's the same message. We're all saying the same thing. Um, it's just that, um, you know, people believe for some reason that if you, if you have this, this, this environment around you that sort of speaks to how successful you are, even though I, I kind of like walked into this role, um, it's an incredible opportunity, but also uh, incredible responsibility. So, so for me, it's exponential. Like I feel that, you know, I love meeting with, um, you know, young professionals and just talking to them. And then when they walk into my office and they're like surprised to see like this, you know, like an observant Jew sitting there and then line up of people waiting up at, at my door to talk to me and uh, a lot going on. They're like, wow, this is incredible. Like you can do that. I'm like, well, yeah, why not? You know, there's no, there's no contradiction. So I think I, I really believe, and I, and I tell this to people all the time. I mean, like I, I said, if you're in a position where you're perceived as being successful, even if it had nothing to do with you or you're in an environment, which, which is, which is, um, which is respected, then you have to know that people are going to look at you differently and people are going to have a higher expectation of who you are and, and the way you can, uh, be, uh, uh, be perceived. And so, you know, that, that's a, that's a responsibility and you have to know if you're a Jew and you have a Messorah and a tradition, which, which imbues, it, it imbues you with that knowledge. You have responsibility for people to see Like I, I go into my office, you know, I know there's different views on whether, whether you wear a yarmulke and big meetings and stuff, but I can tell you the environment around me is different. Like I, I can't tell you how many times I'm in a meeting and someone will curse or they'll say, they'll say like a profanity and then they'll look at me and they'll say, Oh, I'm so sorry. Right. Like, I'm not, I'm not the curse police. Like that's, that's not one of the rules of the office, but it's like, to me, it's like, Oh my gosh, like I, my presence here gives that notion that people feel that they have to talk differently. Now I don't, we don't set rules. We don't set rules about it, but, but it, like, it, it just reminds me how important it is. Um, how we represent ourselves. I mean, you know, if I'm... Uh, there's, there's two interesting little questions I want to ask you. One's like a little example of what happened to me. And the other one is a question along the lines of what you spoke about. When I was living in Europe, I was in a meeting in London and there was a, an investment project that I really wanted to be part of. There were a lot of bidders to be part of this project. And eventually I and my group were chosen to do it. As life will have it, it actually wasn't such a great deal. But at the time, we all thought it was. Everybody did. Um, and I once asked the guy behind us, non-Jewish guy, like, why did you choose our group? Because I would like to think we were less, the least favored. And he says, because I noticed before you put anything to your mouth, you were mumbling something to yourself. So I asked someone, what could he have been doing? And they said that he's making a blessing to thank his God for providing that sustenance. And he said, that's the guy who does business with me. So that was just the, that was, and I've never forgotten that one. The other thing is, he has an interesting thing, what you're saying. You're talking about responsibility, the profile of being from June business and how people expect a higher standard in all respects, right? So I had a conversation yesterday morning with a, uh, a friend of mine, a business friend, let's call it, 
non-Jewish person, and he's negotiating with all his landlords during this time for rent deferrals or restructuring the leases as a result of the reality of today's world. And one of his, one of the landlords is a religious Jew. And he said to me, I was really disappointed in the deal that we're going to be doing. And I said, why is that? So he tells me, because I thought them being religious Jews, I would get a, a more gentle deal than other landlords. So I looked at him and I said to him, does that also mean, because you were so happy to have such an honorable landlord, in the good times you offered him more rent? <laughs> and he said, well, it doesn't really work like that. So, and he couldn't see the faulty logic, right? But I thought I'd love to hear your comment and thought on that. Sometimes a religious Jew, when you have to make hard decisions, do you then have the dilemma, I hope this doesn't reflect badly on the Jewish people and only reflects badly on me. How do you deal with that quandary? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, in this environment, um, with, with the challenges of businesses, so people are forced to make decisions that otherwise are not so popular, right? Um, I, I, I guess the way I see it is um, try to avoid um, arbitrary decision-making um, so that people don't judge your character, but they judge the, the, the information that's making you, uh, that's driving you to make those decisions. Very good. Um, because, right, they can't, they can't, people can't argue with that. And then I think even when you make difficult decisions, you have to show compassion in that decision. Right, and um, I've 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 seen this that even even when people are disagreeing with you, if you if you show them that you genuinely care about what they're saying and that you're really receptive and under understand um, what they're telling you, then even if you disagree afterwards, they're gonna say, you know what, that's a that's that's a kind person. Now, I didn't necessarily agree with the person, right? And we had unfortunately, like just before this call, I got on a, I got off a very difficult discussion on staffing and manpower and um so you know i'm arguing that we need to be you know stronger handed and then you know the person in that of that division was arguing back and said a position said it said something personal like you know well you know what something to the effect well these are my people or something like that and my response back was you know that is the right answer that you just said you should be thinking like that Right. Uh, you know, we all play our different roles in terms of our responsibilities, but it doesn't mean that we lose focus on um, on on being compassionate. And it it's not hard to be compassionate. You know, there's there's books, uh, there's books on how to do it. So, yeah, data be data driven. So and, and, I really like that one and be compassionate. Yeah. I really like that one because I really like that one because being data driven in any or in any negotiation, even in good times, yeah, always allow you to be comfortable with the position you have to take towards an outcome in the negotiation. Whereas if you're more if you're using more the art than the science, I think that's when the, the traditional emotions of fear and greed can come into play. You know, yeah. But data driven that that that's very valuable. That I would add. I would add. I would add one, another piece to it is, um, you know, we, we, we often don't realize how passive aggressive we are. And, and we think that we're being nice when we're not straight with people and, and not giving them clear, definitive information because we're afraid of how it'll make us feel. And we're afraid about the reactions that people will get. And so 
we go through this really uncomfortable sort of passive aggressive non-clear directive information where people are almost feel like they need to figure out exactly what we're trying to tell them and when and how like I, I believe so much so much passive aggressive communication is masked in this in this pretend kindness when really it's it's just it's just a weakness that we have in being clear with people so my kind of guy rabbi rap and i have spoken about this before this people <laughs> talk about i'm conflict averse so i say to them what does that mean conflict averse to me means that if you're going in the supermarket and someone bumps your trolley hard you don't get angry that's conflict averse. but if you're in a work and business environment and you paying someone fairly you're giving them all the result and they're not performing and you don't do anything about that, that's not conflict averse, that's foolish. If you being fair on both sides, as you say, don't be that passive aggressive is terrible because it prolongs an outcome that shouldn't have to be prolonged. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm part of um, an executive leadership group that I was fortunate to, to attend. And um, one of the top advice during crisis management is being brutally honest with people um, but also give a per, give people a sense of optimism for the future based on fact. Yeah. Um, and so if you can kind of couch those two together, um, you know, because if you only have one and not the other, it, it's lopsided. You need to be brutally honest with people, and then you need to lay out the reasons why people should be optimistic about uh, where you're going to go. Uh, and people appreciate that more than anything else. Um, see a scholar, Rabbi Rapp. It's great. A scholar, data and facts, data and facts. Be gentle, use data and facts to validate. There's nothing worse than giving people false optimism, especially in today's time. Yeah. Worst thing you can do, yeah. I, I wanted to pull out from you, if possible, a little bit about developing identity. I think that one of the big challenges that people face sometimes is that they over-represent or over-identify themselves, let's say, with their, you know, their, their, their balance sheet or their company or their position in a company, and they don't really know who they are. And just knowing what I know about you, it's your, your family story is like one of the great American, well, Canadian American business stories of, you know, of, of immigrants, of hard work, of, of creating a, a, an empire of tzedakah, of charity. And then also it's amazing for you. One of the things, you know, I grew up with my best friend being Persian and how so many Persians came to the Western world and, and lost a lot of their traditional identity that they had in Iran. And not only did you not lose it, but you found it in a very real way. But then also very interesting is that you got very involved in the Ashkenazi world. Um, so because you, and then the whole business side. So what's, what's fascinating for me is you are such your own person, but at the same time, it feels like you've been surrounded by these icebergs of identity and perhaps talk about how one could develop a healthy identity with oneself and then kind of with the community that they're in. Yeah, but why did you use the word icebergs? Icebergs gradually melt. Rather use mountains of it. <laughs> mountains or, yes, I think like the super <laughs> analogy, right? Or the, yeah. I'm joking. <laughs> um, oh, that's, there's, there's a lot there. Um, there's, there's no doubt who I am today is very much molded by the environment of my parents and, and my you know, family as a whole. Um, what, what is unique about um, my father, I mean, they were, my parent, my father and his brothers were immigrants. They came to America when they were 16, 17 years old. Um, you know, literally did ha didn't have a penny to their name. Um, and just really the American dream. They, 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 
um, they really worked their way through. But I, one thing that has always been um, through and through is this understanding that there's a, a greater um, guide uh, in life. And if you know my, my father and, you know, and, and my, my uncles, there's, they, when they say the stories about their life, they talk about the miracles that happen, right? The same stories that you hear from others, they're always going to be talking about, can you believe at that moment what happened? And, and you know how this happened. And I mean, they got that from my grandmother, Alea Shalom, that she, um, she imbued them with this deep sense of faith um, that they had as children. I mean, my, 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 my uncle, one of my uncles, when he was leaving the port and the airport as a young child to come to America, it, my grandmother told him, he said, look, you know, you're going to America, you're alone. I want you to take this, this Torah with you. And every day I want you to just read one line. And he looked at her and he says, and, and he's brilliant. Uh, this uncle of mine he says, well, what's the point of one line? She says, promise me you will read from one side of the page to the other. And he looks at her and he says, okay, I, I promise you that that's it. She's like, that's all I ask you. And, and he did it every day. Now, he happens to be a, a brilliant minded person. And she, she, in her infinite wisdom, knew that he's going to have a lot of ups and downs in life. And every day he read one line. And then he started doing that for months. And it's like, well, I have no idea what I'm reading. Started reading the translation. And then started reading the commentary. And then started reading the Mepharshim. And eventually he was approached by somebody and he said, you know what? You should start learning Talmud. And I can tell you, I was sitting at a Shabbat meal a couple of years ago and my, my uncle gets up in the middle of the meal and he makes a, a completion uh, ceremony on the entire Talmud of, 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 of Shas. And, wow. and he says that it was inevitably the wisdom of my mother who knew that life is going to bring a lot of different things in your way, but just make sure that you have consistent in, in engagement in your learning, in your, in, in your Judaism. And that, mind you, my family, we didn't grow up observant. Like we weren't, um, you know, it was only, it was only, uh, I, I mean, I was younger, but my parents, you know, they made that transition. And what's unique about it is that, you know, they were at the height of their business when they became more observant, which typically doesn't happen. It's usually. No, 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 yeah. Right. You, normally, you normally swap the real God for the God of money when you become yeah. successful, right? Not the other way around. Right. So, That's amazing. Yeah. So they showed the Hakarat Tov at the heart of their success. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and it's just always been, um, you know, it's always been that recognition. And like in our family, we have a very clear distinction, a clear understanding that we have those that are in the business and those that are full-time in, in uh, Torah scholars. And with respect to the family, we don't, we don't look at any less because we understand that there's a, there's a deep and important, um, relationship that exists within us. I mean, uh, Families that who identify themselves with just their wealth, by definition, have no definition, right? Because money doesn't, money is not an object. Money is just, it exists in its potential. And so if, if I'm defined by something which has no definition, then I, then I really, that's what happens. You have, there's no world, there's no structure in who I am. There's no definition in who I am. When you have a value system, and I tell people that supersedes your, your business and your personal success. There's a value system. And I can tell you, I can't, I can't really count the stories of how a value system overrode uh, a monetary uh, benefit. And 
you, you know, in the short run, maybe it looked like we were losing out as a result of that. But in the long run, that, that overarching value is what keeps everyone together and in line with, 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 with growth. Um, it's very interesting. Yesterday, I'm involved in a venture capital company in Canada. And I was interviewing a potential senior person and I asked them all their questions. And then they asked me, I gave him a chance to ask me a question. And he said to me, tell me your best exit and your best investment. So I described my best exit. It was having the courage to cut my losses on a bad deal. And he's like, that's your best exit? I know some of your exits have been, you know, then got successful. I said, that's my job. My job is to create success. I don't get overjoyed when I'm just doing my job. Mm. Then I have courage to cut my losses. That, that's my best exit. Then he says, okay, well, what's your best investment? I didn't really like the other answer. <laughs> so I spoke about something and I was, uh, I had Baruch Hashem, the ability to build a uh, financial institution as a co-founder. And then he says, but what are the, the metrics? Tell me the financial metrics. I said, the financial metrics is that there are probably about 300 people who wake up every morning feeling proud to allow their families' futures to be dependent on a company that I co-founded. And they walk around with joy and they believe that they can achieve their self-actualization in that entity. That's a great investment. Because if they each have three kids, that's a thousand people. And then their neighbors and all that. And it's like, I don't like any of these answers really. <laughs> so I said to him, well, what were you hoping for? He says, give me some IRRs in absolute dollars. And I, and I was so happy that I authentically and sincerely could give him the answer that you just said. I said that all of those means is a concept called currency. Currency changes hands. That means it's fluid. My currency is that which my creator values me upon. Mm. Not the stuff that changes human hands as quickly as it comes and it goes. And either he's going to be happy to take your job or he's going to say, this is a psychiatric institution. <laughs> I'm keeping way away from these people. But it, it's funny because that just happened to me yesterday morning. I could see he was like... I don't know about this guy, you know, but it's a beautiful thing that you I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I don't know how much time we have. Um, we have a whole no time. Tell us, tell us a story. Yeah. I don't know. My father, I think, is okay that I share the story. I've, I've already said it publicly. So when, when we were becoming more observant, um, so in, in Canada, there was something called the Blue Laws, which still exists in, in some places in the, in, in the U.S., which basically didn't, didn't allow for shopping on Sundays. And so really the only day you can go shopping on the weekend was on Saturday. And my mother was just not complaining, but was just sort of, you know, uncomfortable with the fact that as we were becoming more observant, there wasn't a day to go shopping at, you know, at, at West Edmonton Mall, which was in Canada, in Edmonton, where we grew up. And so my father and looked at her and he says, well, you know what? Let me take care of that. <laughs> She's like, this, this, you know, what does he mean? He says, yeah, let me, let me fix that. And so what he did was he went into the, into West Edmonton Mall, which has, I think about 800, uh, 800 retail shops in it. And he goes over to, I think it was maybe a hundred of them. And he says, guys, this coming Sunday, I want you to open your stores. And they said, oh, Mr. Gramazia, are you crazy? 
it's illegal or going to get fined. It, it, you'll get fined. It was basically a fine system. So he says, don't worry, you open it and I'll pay your fines. And so they said, doesn't make any sense. There's nobody goes shopping on Sundays. It's like, just open. So he, the first hundred open and you know, the, the police come out, they get wind of it and they write tickets to everyone. So the next week he calls them all back in and then he calls in another hundred or 200 and says, not only do I want you to open, I want all the rest of you guys to open as well. And they're like, are you crazy? Do you understand how much this is going to cost you? He's like, just do it. And in the meantime, word starts getting out in the news that the, that the shopping center is open on Sundays and people were coming in droves because it was such an anomaly because nobody ever went shopping on a Sunday. And then what he did is he called the other shopping centers in town and he says, you fools, do you realize how much opportunity you're missing? I would encourage you to, you know, to open up your stores and they all open. And so what you had is this domino effect now and <laughs> the, 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 uh, they were making their quota in terms of, uh, um, their, you know, the fines at the time. But then what ended up happening, it was a trigger effect in Toronto. They started opening in Vancouver and then literally the entire Canada market opened up on Sundays. Originally it was because of a religious value, but it, at that no, time, it, it, was, it, it had become so just, it would just, there wasn't really a, a rationale to it any longer. And what ended up happening is that it became such a major event in Canadian um, politics that they would have had to open another branch of the government to, to be able to process all of the fines. And they literally overturned the law uh, of the blue laws in Canada. And so I remember telling my mom once, I'm like, do you realize that because of Shabbat and because of how the honor of Shabbat, we could have thought that we were losing out, but you know, there's no question that um, you know, the project was more successful because we've just gained the most valuable day of shopping. But think about how much, um, how much opportunity was created in the world and how many more people are not going to be having to go and shopping on Shabbat. My father claims that if you look at the timeline, the United States blue laws turning over was also at around. Uh, so he feels responsible for well, I, I am going to disagree with you, Rabbi. I don't think it was because of a religious value. I think it was because of Shalom Bias. <laughs> Father wanted to keep your mother happy, right? That's right. Happy wife, happy wife. Uh, <laughs> Tell us about your family. I, I don't know much about, um, just about how you as a busy father and with all these obligations and how you, and, um, uh, the balance. Yeah, I have a, a wonderful family. Thank God. My wife, I have six kids. Um, what's interesting about COVID is that I would have never in a million years thought I would be able to spend as much time as I do home. Um, I mean, I'm, I regularly leave the home, leave home at around six o'clock in the morning, uh, to go to the prayers in the morning. And then I would immediately go to the, the Kolel, which is the local uh, study hall. Uh, and then study, you know, I, I have a study partner for a couple hours in the morning. And then I would go straight to the office and then only get home at dinner. So I'm leaving very early in the morning. And for probably the last 10, 15 years of my life, I have no idea what happens in the morning. I mean, to the credit of my wife, I mean, it's incredible sacrifice she's made that I've pretty much been MIA because she knew how important starting my, you know, the, the day off you know, with, with, uh, with my study. And so, you know, I've lived a large segment of my kids' lives not home. And I had no idea what that looked like, but literally for the last five or six months, I mean, five, yeah, four or five months, 
I've been home. I mean, our office, you know, we, we're advising our, our, our people not to come back uh, into the office, but work remotely. And this has been an incredible opportunity for me to, I think really, first of all, appreciate much more of the dynamic that, that takes place at home. Um, you know, we, we do know about it because we might hear about it after our days and um, professionally, but I think a much, much deeper appreciation for um, how little I have to do with how my family might have any, any sense of health uh, religiously and emotionally uh, to my wife's credit. And, um, but making sure to try to keep my schedule as much as possible in uncertain times, I think, I think is important. Um, I, 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 I firmly believe that whenever there's a changed environment, it's actually a new beginning. And new beginnings don't have the baggage of the past, of our, our past behaviors. And so whenever there's a dramatic shift, anything, you move to a new house, a new job, you actually have a very small window of time to start something right then because you have no, there's no charted way for you. And unfortunately, what we do is we spend a lot of time trying to figure out the dark, you know, the confusion of the time. And then by that time, we've already settled back into our old behaviors and our old routines. But really to, to chart a path early on whenever there's change is a very powerful way to start new patterns and behaviors. Um, so for me, I, 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 yeah, I've thought of that many times. And like, you know, every city I've lived in, I've tried to plan in advance, you know, what, it, you know, what are the schools? Like we don't, we didn't decide where to live. We needed the right schools around. We needed the right synagogues around. And I personally need a study hall, like a kollel to be in the, in the cities that we lived in. I even had my study partners um, already set before I ever met them, uh, before I even moved to a new town. Um, because, you know, the, the more, the be beginnings are opportunities. And so like COVID, I just tell everyone I know, I'm like, this is new. Like you have a whole new world. Like you can do anything right now because everything else is out the door. Um, so, so that for me has been a big, a big change. But again, being trying to stay consistent with what you know is, is important to you is, is key um, in, in terms of, of drawing that balance. And it's not easy, you know, like when, you know, my kids are banging on the door and legitimately I'm around and they don't understand like how important could it be that you're just sitting in front of a computer screen and smiling to people, right? They, they, okay. don't, they don't understand that, but you have to be sensitive to it. Sorry, I don't know if that's answers. It's a, it's a beautiful question answer. I wanted to ask you. I know I know that you're you're running short on time. Just just for a moment, Mike and I had the wonderful opportunity of speaking with a Holocaust survivor yesterday and getting her perspective on on how she dealt with trying times and facing the future out of tragedy. And I would love for you if, if you could possibly share a little bit. I mean, you know, you guys are sort of retail in the Western Hemisphere. And I know that you have the, the big project in New Jersey that was just getting open and you guys had to shut down the Mall of America and dealing with all of this uncertainty. How have you, how is your family as, as people of faith, as people who have Umuna, like how have you dealt with it? How has that affected your experience and what advice could you give to someone who's similarly in in a business that's so dramatically affected by the world that we live in today who um i'm, I'm not going to pretend that there's any easy answer to that question because you know i can tell you how stressful it is um for us right the, you know the, the big the bigger the industry uh, in in the talmud they say 
right? The more positions you have, the more you worry about it. Um, so this has absolutely been probably the biggest challenge that we've ever had as a family. Now, um, what I can tell you is, what I can tell you is that what gives us the comfort <clears throat> is anyone who looks back at, at life will almost inevitably realize that everything that has happened, whether good or any pathway that has happened, is clearly the hand of God guiding the process. We just, we just don't, we, because we live in the present, we're not cognizant of what happens in the past. And if you just look back a little bit, you'll realize that so much of where we are today is, is, is miraculous. And somehow we did survive and we made it through. I, I mean, the resilience of man is incredible. But because we only see the present, we don't realize how strong we are and how we can get through things. So I think just having a, a healthy inventory of the past to think like, you know, I've been through so much and, 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 and God has always been there. I think that's an important piece. I think family is important. Um, a lot of support uh, from family. And then um, this may come, might, may not be understood properly, but really don't give, not giving up. And you know, we have a concept in Judaism that says you have to make your efforts, right? Hishtadlut is that we don't believe that you can sit back and then God is just going to give you everything. But we forget the other side of the coin is that we have to do what's responsible. And putting up our hands and saying, well, you know, I don't know what's going to be. That's also not what God wants. God wants us to be engaged. He wants us to make our effort. And then this is the key point. is Once we've done everything that we can without being unreasonable or without going overboard, because then it's as if God's not in the picture, when a person genuinely believes that they're doing everything that they can, at that point in time, a person can say, you know what, God, I'm doing everything I can. Now you can bring your blessing and you can guide the rest of the pathway. And there's a, there's a comfort to know that it's not, it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be your pathway. You don't have to fix everything. You just have to do your part. Um, uh, yeah, I, there's a lot to say about that, but I think, I, I, I think, Again, the key, the key, the key ideas is to be cognizant of the past, um, and that and that will help a person. Like you know, I just look at it. I I talk to my wife all the time about. It. I'm like you know, think about our lives until this point in time, and think about how incredible things have been. Like we, you know, we work things out. Things, a lot of challenges we've all been through, and just like look where we are today. I'm like, just let's fast forward five years from now, ten years from now. I'm sure. It'll work out. God has been there for us in the past. I, again, it's too it's too generic for me to say this for everyone. It's like I don't want to be insensitive because a lot of people are going through, you know, a lot of yeah, you know, right now. You're not being insensitive at, at all. In fact, this this color I met and in our community in, in La Jolla, San Diego, there are quite a few very prominent on a almost on a global scale Holocaust survivors. For whatever reason, maybe it's the the, the nice temperate weather. They, at 90 years old, they're healthy, they're strong, Baruch Hashem, amazing people. But this woman we interviewed yesterday was different to almost every other one. She didn't have any macro philosophical thoughts. Like I said to her about the world and what do you teach your grand? None of that stuff. She was just a downright pragmatic person. She says, I got through the Holocaust where you had no idea the evil that I witnessed because I had hope. I said, hope for what? You normally say, I hope for, she says, I hope for a better day tomorrow. That's it. 
nothing else. And every time we pushed her, I hope for a better day tomorrow. We said to her, when your grandkids and your kids come to ask you for advice, what do you tell them? She said, never ask me for advice. I said, and then we decided it's because they just watch her. That's the rare advice, right? But she always said, when me and my husband, we never dwelled on the past, and we never spoke about it to each other. There was too much emotional energy, and we had to start again. We had to move forward, and that was our decision. And she said, all I can tell people today is today's today, and you hope for a better tomorrow. That's it. Nothing else to tell you guys. No macro philosophy. It was phenomenal. No one's been that. She was just so pragmatic. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? And we say Modeani in the morning. Thank you, God, for putting me back into another day, for putting my soul back in. I guess sometimes we just got to look forward to the Modeani for tomorrow, right? Wow. That's beautiful. Well, John, I tremendously appreciate it. One of the, the last question that I try to ask our guests is what, when we, we, the name of our, our podcast is the Jewish Executive Podcast Project. I'm sorry, the Jewish Executive Project. And we want to, I guess, find out from you what is, what is unique? What is it about being Jewish that impacts who you are as an executive? What do you think the unique thing that Jews are supposed to be doing as, as executives that, that other people don't necessarily have that same weight per se? Um, wow. So just to rephrase the question, what, what about my Judaism would you say is the most informative in terms of how I, how I show up to who I am in a, in a professional sense? Correct. That, that would be exactly right. What about being an observant Jew is practically affects your where you can have yourself as a leader and executive. Oh, much better. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's better. Okay, hold on. We got a little disturbance there. Um, I, you know, can I, if, I, if I can answer that for my family, because I do believe I'm a family leader as much as a business leader, I'll tell you with the chaotic nature of the world today, one thing that I tell my kids all the time, I think it's a, it's an incredible message to share is I say, do you see how the, confused the world is? People don't know if they should love, they should hate. Nobody knows what they should be passionate about, what they should be angry about. And I always tell them, I'm like, we are so lucky. We are so blessed that we have the Torah because it gives us it gives us a way to get through this. I'm like, could you imagine if we didn't have that? We would, we would be one day running in the streets, you know, like I, I think I would have been an animal rights activist for sure. Like I'd be like somewhere in Africa, not, not to say there's anything wrong with that, but like, it's so hard to know where we should plug ourselves in because we're all so passionate by nature. I, I always tell my kids, know, they're, they're sick of hearing me say it. I'm like, you know, whenever we talk about some chaotic world of, of, of people and choices. I always say how fortunate we are that, that we don't have to, we don't have to figure it out on our own. That's the first thing. Um, on a, on, on, an, uh, on a business level, I think I touched upon it earlier. I think that if, if we, you know, get, depending on the role and the position of a person, I think if we understood the, 
um, the responsibility of that role, uh, whether it's lay leadership in the community, people are watching. You know, people are watching to see what you do and how you do it. And we may not think so highly of ourselves because maybe we don't have that much that we should think so highly about. But I want you to know that people will inevitably look at you. You know, before I left Kolel and I was moving into the professional world, I asked my rabbi, I said, Rabbi, now I'm going to make my, my mark on the world. What would you say is the, what should I do? Like, how, how can I make a big difference? And I love this. He told me, he says, just let people see that you're sitting and studying Torah in the mornings after Shacharit. Let people just see you there. Let people know that that's what you do. I'm like, what, what do you mean? I, I, I do that anyway. I'm like, that's it. Just, just live it, live it, um, live it. And that's going to have uh, an impact on the people around you. So I would say that no, no, every one of us have people that look up to us in, in many different ways. Just assume that responsibility and know that the little things that we're doing, people are going to be watching us. And if, and if you have the ability to say the same, same things that everyone else does, but from your vantage point, you're going to have an incredible opportunity to help guide people through this darkness. Um, I think it's, it's, it's an incredible responsibility. Amazing. As, as always, it is such a pleasure to spend time with you. I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's, uh, wow. What a champ. Thank you so much. And for me, a pleasure to meet you and spend time with you as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. For more information or how to reach us, please follow us on social and reach out to jrupp at aish.edu.